previously on Serial Dater. I've been a terrible dater for most of my life, except for this one week in the spring of 2011 when I went on five first dates in one week. Date number one. I've nicknamed this guy Bowtie. Date number two in my five dates in one week marathon was with an airline pilot. Date number three. Argyle. The worst date of my life. Welcome to date number four. The texter. Date number five. Matt. Oh yeah, I'm using his real name here because uh, he was kind of great. He said that he didn't want to get involved if I was leaving in a couple of months. Instead, Matt said the five words that I had come to hate with a fiery passion when spoken by guys who I had feelings for. I'd like to stay friends. I first wrote this podcast as an essay for an article in Essay Workshop in the fall of 2013. And in its original format, it ended super abruptly, right after my date with Matt. There was some hasty wrap-up at the end, a cop-out from real, actual soul reckoning, which everyone in the workshop rightly called me out on. I thought I had learned a lesson and wanted to teach everyone else, but in my efforts to make it easy to swallow, I had reduced it too fast, too hard. And it made me miss the lesson, and worse, miss that I had missed it. Because lessons, the useful ones anyway, aren't neat and easy like gel caps. They're deep and complex and take a while for you to work through, kind of like a burrito. Sometimes shit comes out the side and gets everywhere, like with Mushu. Okay, well, it's entirely possible that I'm just hungry and that all of my metaphors are going to be food-related, but whatever the case, I'd like to try and do due diligence on my date week. And to do that, I need to catch you up on what's been going on since. So, here I have to present to you one last order of shittily wrapped, leaking, Moo Shoe Serial Dater. Shakespeare play I ever read was Romeo and Juliet, and I think if we were to try and come up with an urtext for the love story, we could make a pretty persuasive argument for Romeo and Juliet being it. It's Shakespeare, and he's pretty good at what he does, and what with all the crushes, flirting, sword fights, poison, sex, and suicide, it can usually hold the attention of even the most distracted 15-year-old. But when I read it, as enthralled as I was in the roller coaster of action and emotions, I kept coming back to this one thing. This seemed like a hideous case of unbelievably bad timing. The number of things that had to go wrong for Jules and Rome's to end up in that chapel for their accidental double suicide borders on ludicrous. While the traditional villains in the play end up being the parents Montague and Capulet, I was looking to a different parental figure, Father Fucking Time. Time as an enemy of love was going to be something that would follow me through my own love life. Guys who had just decided to be exclusive with someone else, guys who were just about to leave town, guys who weren't looking for something serious just then. The first time this would happen, I'd say, that's the way the cookie crumbles. But the fifth time it would happen, it was more like, are all the cookies crumbled? What did you do to this package of cookies? Did you sit on it or something? Finding a guy like Matt, who I really liked, and who seemed to like me back just before I was about to check out of New York, felt like the freshest, cruelest kick to the nuts that I had received from the city that never sleeps. 
It put me in a kind of fuck-love mood, and accordingly, I spent my last few weeks in NYC looking for connections that were not based on ratatat, or compatible tastes, or good writing abilities. For my last hurrah on the Big Apple, I was only really looking for two qualities in the men I met. Willing and able. It was a strange time all around. Even though I'm a Virgo, I have a strong Libra presence in my chart, and I'm accordingly wildly indecisive. Even though the decision of which grad school to go to had ultimately been made easy by money, in the weeks leading up to it, there were a lot of pro and con lists. And if you thought that I didn't take into consideration the gay dating prospects of the two cities, well then, I feel like maybe you've been listening to a different podcast for the past five weeks. My measurements were entirely unscientific. I signed on to OkCupid and did a search in each city, counting how long it took their algorithm to return dudes who were more than 30 miles out of town. Tucson had 25 pages, with probably 10 or so guys per page. Tallahassee had 8. Compare this to New York's, oh wait, I never even came close to exhausting the vast repository of gays in NYC. For what it's worth, I also took a gander at some less dating-oriented websites, Here the two cities were more evenly matched, though Tallahassee had way more guys who described themselves as, quote, discreet. Which like, I know everyone is on their own journey, but come on guys, it's 2015. Of course, all the deliberating was pointless because one school offered me a full ride and a stipend, and the other didn't. And all of a sudden, my decision was made. The first moment I realized I was in the South on, like, a spiritual level was on the second morning of my drive to Florida. I stopped at a truck stop in North Carolina for a cup of coffee, and they only had styrofoam cups. Well, this is bullshit, I thought, and got back in my car and drove across the street to a McDonald's. Yes, I was resorting to a McDonald's, thinking they'd have paper cups, ordered a coffee, and was handed styrofoam. I stepped outside and saw a big rig truck with the words, Mobile Chapel, Transport for Christ, written on the side. I had arrived. If any of you were saying to yourself, well, okay, but he's heading to Florida, that's not really the South, you're both right and wrong. Florida is one weird-ass state, Actually, Kyle Munzenreiter makes the persuasive argument that Florida is in fact 10 distinct states in the Miami New Times, complete with an amazing map, which I'll link to on the website. A few people explained it by saying that the North Florida border is like a mirror, and as you go farther south in the state, the sensibilities become more in line with the American North. Tallahassee may be a part of Florida in a geopolitical way, and sure, they shipped up a few palm trees from Fort Lauderdale, But Florida's capital is one cartographer's sneeze from being in South Georgia. If I took away any signage that gave away that it was in Florida, you'd probably think you were in Mississippi or Louisiana. There are huge shade trees and canopy roads, and Spanish moss everywhere, which feels atmospheric until someone tells you it can have chiggers in it, and then you realize that though you've heard the word chiggers before, you don't actually know what they are, but it's enough to avoid touching it ever again. I don't know that I actually have any wise observations to make about the South as a whole, except to say that I feel like I understand America a little better having been there, 
the way you sometimes understand someone better after you meet their parents. Sadly, I don't understand boys or dating any better. When I got into FSU, I asked Brittany, a New York friend who had gone to law school at FSU, what the gay scene was like down there. There's a great gay bar called Brothers, she said. That's the only place my friends and I ever went out. Upon arriving in Tallahassee, I discovered that Brothers had closed a couple years earlier. Sort of taking its place was a once-a-week gay night at an Irish bar called Pug Mahoney's, which on Fridays turned into rehab. I could take rehab in small, very drunken doses, but that was all. A Saturday spent hungover after a night at rehab would usually cure me of any desire to return for at least a few months. The queer community in Tallahassee was small, though robust, but instead of utilizing it as a way to network in a city that didn't have a strong gay social scene, I avoided it with feelings of impending claustrophobia. On the other hand, I was also waist-deep in grad school, which meant, sure, studying and writing and crap, but it also meant a lot of socializing and drinking. I had thought comic book people could put away booze, and they can, and they do. But where comic book people specialized in depth of drinking, grad students were champions of breadth. First, the drinks were cheap as hell. Second, unless you got stuck with a morning class, you didn't have to be anywhere until 11 o'clock at the earliest. All by way of saying that, given the choice between rehab with its $10 cover and shitty electronic dance music, not to mention the occasional undergraduate student, and, say, Bird's Aphrodisiac Oyster Shack, where we'd sit outside at picnic tables, eating cheap baskets of french fries and drinking $7 pitchers of beer, well, the gays didn't really stand much of a chance. Accordingly, I did a minimal amount of dating in Tallahassee. My first year there, I met a guy on OkCupid who was also an out-of-town grad student. He was cute as hell and smart too, getting his master's in religion and focusing on bioethics. I even entertained the stupefying notion that the wrench in my dating works had been New York City the whole time. But after four weeks of dating, during which time I was probably trying a smidge too hard, he said those well-meaning but deep-cutting words. I'd like to just be friends. And so I didn't really see him again. On the other hand, Tallahassee was a small enough town that I could recognize his car on site. So as opposed to New York, where guys would fade into the backdrop of 8 million people, I started seeing his car everywhere and had to focus in order to avoid wigging out. The other guy I dated in any meaningful way was like a near zero on the habeas corpus scale. We texted for a month in Tallahassee before I left to go spend five weeks in New York between the spring and summer term, meaning our first real date took place over 60 days after we made first contact. I had actually sort of given up on him and jokingly asked if he'd pick me up at the airport when I got back to Tallahassee, which he surprisingly agreed to. He was crazy tall, 6'5", and had a smile like a floodlight and eyes that would punch me in the face every time. But we were also wildly different, culturally and socially. When I decided to call things off, I sort of had figured out that we might capital L like each other a lot, but didn't actually lowercase L like each other, and that was one rickety-ass foundation to build something on top of. 
Again, I feel it's important to underscore that neither of these guys lasted longer than two months. By the time I had gotten to my last year of graduate school, I was turning 30 and was still empty-handed, boy-wise. So I found myself at the beginning of my last year in grad school in a creative nonfiction workshop. I had been thinking about writing about my five-date week for a little while, and this seemed like a pretty good excuse to do it. But there, two and a half years after the fact, I found that while I still had certain impressions of the five guys, I don't think I was ever going to forget the Pride and Prejudice universe, I was missing huge chunks of what had happened. I could remember the order the dates had taken place in, and where we had gone, but as far as days of the week, times, and specific events, that was all hazy at best. So I started investigating myself. I've heard many, many writers talk about the importance of keeping a journal or a notebook. I met Cheryl Strayed, author of the memoir Wild, when she came to Florida State, and she spoke about how she journaled every day on her trek. David Sedaris talks about the notebook he keeps in his front pocket that he writes everything down in. I'm sure the line between our modern age of tweets and Facebook and my own sieve-like brain and inability to focus long enough to keep a notebook or journal like these two writers is not a hard one to draw. But despite my wanting to have been the kind of writer who took meticulous notes on my everyday life, at least during this crucible of dating madness, that just wasn't me. But that isn't to say that I didn't leave my future self anything to go on. My first treasure trove of information was my Gmail account. For all you kids out there, before Gmail came along, you used to have to purge your email account with an unpleasant regularity. Now though, not only is every email I've sent or received since 2004 maintained in pristine condition, but every single Gchat I've had is similarly preserved, indexed, and searchable. I don't know if this focus on such a short period of time a couple years removed is something that other people do at all, but I can say this, it's a very strange experience. The divergence between what I remembered with what was recorded in my emails and chats made it almost seem like I was investigating another person, a stranger who'd been chatting with all of my friends, living a similar but different week of dates. There were things I had forgotten altogether, like the fact that despite Bowtie's love of Jane Austen, he'd never heard of the Bronte sisters, or the fact that I had helped my friend Mark move apartments between my date with the texter and Matt. And then there were things that I had misremembered, for instance, even though I remembered my last date with Matt as having taken place right after I got back from my visit to Tallahassee, it was almost two weeks later, and that he'd been a little hard to get a hold of. Of course, most of my communication with these five guys didn't occur over email. They each started on a dating website and eventually migrated to texting. As I've said before, all of those early exchanges were gone, along with a few of the websites they existed on. In fact, the only thing still intact was Matt's OkCupid profile. Same username and everything. His answers were still curt and funny. I laughed out loud when I read his response to favorite books, movies, shows, music, and food, which was 
bro, let's not do this. He'd posted some new pictures, too, and had grown a cute beard. I even came close to shooting him a message, but I balked when I tried to think of what it is I would say. Hey, Matt, I was just skulking around your OkCupid profile for an essay I'm writing about our first date because I'd gone on four other first dates that week, and I thought I'd say, hey, sup? I definitely wanted to reach out to him, but I decided it'd be better to save that for when I was back in New York, assuming that's where I even ended up after I finished in Tallahassee. The other repository of information that I needed access to was one that was much more immediate and yet a lot harder to get into. I'd been backing up my iPhone to my computer since I'd gotten one, and lo and behold, my computer had saved on it every text I'd ever sent. Ever. The only problem, the files are encoded in a way that you can't read them without A, reloading the files back onto your iPhone, or B, buying a special program for $25 to decrypt the file. I went for choice B. What this program spat out was a spreadsheet over 10,000 lines long, and this was only my texts between December 2010 and May 2012. This is how I discovered my endless exchanges with the texter, and how I remembered that both the pilot and bowtie had pulled disappearing acts before we ended up going on the dates. Between the texts, my g-chats, and my memory, I was able to piece together the week and the dates into a semi-coherent narrative. And then I had the workshop, and it went well, and I put the essay in a drawer. I didn't intend to give up on it, but between my thesis and the other assignments on my plate, it took a back seat. I defended my thesis in the summer of 2014, and at the end of July, I sold my bed, sold a bunch of books, and packed the balance of my worldly possessions into my car, lived for a week at my friend CJ's house while I finished off the summer term, and got two cavities filled, and then drove back to New York. I've managed to do this thing since I left New York where I keep moving places with increasingly fewer dateable guys. I went from NYC to Tallahassee, and then from Tallahassee to Shelter Island, New York, located at the far end of Long Island. I'm living out here with my grandmother, who's taken me in while I keep writing. When I'd only been out here a few weeks, my dad came out and asked whether I was going to do any dating out here, in a well-meaning parental kind of way, though also clearly freaking me out a bit. That night... It must have been 10.30 or 11. As I semi-begrudgingly updated my OkCupid profile, I thought about Matt and punched up his profile, which was still there. It looked more or less the same as before, except in the self-summary section, he'd written, Update. I'm taking a break from life for a bit to battle cancer. Just on here killing boredom in the hospital. Not really able to date, so... I sat there staring at the screen. Cancer? Hospital? I clicked on the send him a message button with the intention of sending a get well soon note, asking if he needed anything, offering to come visit him, whatever. And then I stopped myself, thinking that this probably wasn't a message that should come through OkCupid. But all I had for him contact-wise was his dating profile and his cell phone, and texting him also seemed too abrupt and immediate. So I logged onto Facebook. Matt and I had never become Facebook friends, and I couldn't remember his last name, though I had a vague memory of it having a bunch of hard consonants right at the beginning. I don't know how many of you have used Facebook's graph search, but it's a creepily powerful tool. First, I searched for all the maths who lived in Brooklyn between the age of 23 and 29. I was fairly sure he was 26, but wanted to give myself a wide berth, but came up with nothing. 
Of course, a lot of people don't list their age on Facebook, so I widened the search to all of the mats in Brooklyn. The search returned hundreds, maybe thousands of names, but with the methodic persistence of someone on a mission, I scanned each name and profile pic, hoping that I'd recognize his name or spot his face when I came across it. It was starting to feel a little futile as I clicked onto the 15th page of results, but then there he was. His profile was fairly tightly locked down, but his pictures weren't, so I knew it was him, and now I had his last name. I was once again about to send him a message when I noticed his last activity was February of 2014, six months earlier. I clicked back to his OkCupid page, no activity since January. I don't know why I started typing his name into Google. Maybe on some level I knew it was coming, but before I could even hit return, Google's auto-search filled the word obituary in after Matt's name. I think even then I tried to tell myself that something else was going on. I knew Matt's father had passed away several years earlier, and thought for a moment that maybe this was his dad's obituary. But when I clicked on the first link Google returned, I was suddenly face to face with a pixelated but charming picture of Matt, bearded and bespeckled, grinning like mad. The first sentence read, Matthew passed peacefully from this life on March 1st, 2014, surrounded by his family. Anything to try and keep the world away from him. All he wants is something new. Alone in my room, out here on the end of Long Island, late at night in the middle of August, I cried my eyes out. This guy who I'd spent only a handful of days with, who I hadn't kept in touch with, who I'd only thought about sporadically in the three years since I'd last seen him, he was gone. And yet, in a weird inversion, he was also everywhere. I had the picture in his obituary, the pictures on his Facebook profile, his pictures and his responses on his OkCupid profile. I couldn't stop seeing him. But he won't seem to calm down and do what people want. So he goes out and writes the perfect wrong in his unfaithful song. In retrospect, I should have called someone. I'm certain I could have. It was midnight, but I'm sure I could have raised someone, if not on the East Coast, then definitely on the West Coast. Even the next morning when I told my grandmother about it, she told me I should have woken her up. And yet, the whole narrative of how I knew Matt was so large and unwieldy that I felt I was barely able to keep my arms around it, let alone try to explain it to someone else while also reeling from the news of his death. What would I even call him? My friend? An acquaintance? A guy I used to like? Somebody that I used to know? And did such a connection earn me the right to the sadness that I felt? Because it was sadness that I was feeling, and feeling keenly. Have you ever had one of those moments where you realize you can't define a really basic word? I once challenged one of my classes to define the verb to forgive without using a dictionary, and we kind of had a difficult time. I think the answer we came up with was something crazy like, to promise to refrain from penalizing a perpetrator of a wrongdoing against one's person. I've been trying to do the same thing with sadness, and it, like, took me a second. Sad is something we're taught at such a young age that the signifier and the signified become indistinguishable from one another. 
Even the dictionary doesn't help out. Most of the definitions characterize sadness in terms of other emotions, feeling or showing sorrow, unhappy. But here's what sadness is. It's the emotion that results from something happening that we don't want to happen, and yet we're powerless to change it. And what I'd wanted to happen was, I wanted Matt to still be there when I got back from Florida. I wanted to go on a date with him when I didn't have a big life change hanging over my head. I wanted to be able to jump in with both feet. But it was too late. Not only a little too late, but a lot too late. And yet, by some weird twist of unintended technological byproduct, I could be alone on an island in the middle of the night, surrounded by the images and words of someone who had been dead for six months. I wanted him to still be alive so bad, and in a weird, almost kind of way, he was, in my mind, for these brief moments. But instead of what normally happens when I think of someone I care deeply about and miss them acutely, I call or email or text or Facebook or Gchat. I had zero options. It was just me, my wanting it so bad to be one way, and knowing so hard that it was another way. Still, he seemed so close. All of these impressions he had made in the internet were still there. Further digging through the internet yielded a Twitter account, with only five tweets, all retweets, one of which was from a comedy writer who had written, On your first day in the hospital, kick the ass of the sickest motherfucker in there. A Pinterest account with the words, This is silly underneath his name, and a LinkedIn profile. Though I knew it was absurd, I think on some deep, yearning level, I wanted to think that if I kept looking hard enough, maybe, maybe... I debated for a long time about whether or not I should reach out to his family. It was a similar problem I'd had when I was originally reluctant to reach out to my own friends. How would I tell them who I was? How would I explain why I was so... late? And, even worse, what would I say? I made out with your son a few times and he made me laugh and I wanted to say how sorry I am. They'd lost a son, a friend, and I'd lost... what had I lost? The answer is kind of shamefully self-absorbed. I'd lost someone I'd cataloged away as a potential boyfriend. Matt was the first guy I'd come across in my nearly 10 years in New York who I liked and who seemed to like me back enough to want to date me. As far as I know, his only beef with me had been that I was moving 1,200 miles away, which, as beefs go, was pretty legitimate. And then there was his illness. Had he been sick when we dated? Did that have anything to do with why he hadn't wanted to keep going when I was getting ready to leave town? Had I been an inadvertent asshole? Always a ready possibility. By not seeing it? I thought back to our last date, where we were sitting on his bed, him having stopped me a few seconds into making out so that he could say that he couldn't keep dating me if I was leaving. To that moment where I had been unable to say, 
Even if we only date until I leave town, this will still be the most successful relationship I've ever had. Had he been thinking, I can't spend time on this because I don't have that much time left. I knew, I know, that on some level, what absolutely gutted me about Matt's death was thinking of him in his hospital bed, dying and single. Even as I type it out, it sounds idiotic. I knew his family was with him and he'd been surrounded by friends the entire time. Besides, from what I knew of him, he was a positive skewing pragmatist, not a cynic. He wouldn't have quibbled about the type of love he was receiving. And yet, had we laid all of our cards on the table, and there's no way we would have, having only known each other for such a short time, but had we done it, might things have turned out differently? The possibility felt, sometimes still feels so close to being real that it's excruciating. But this is not a melody for you No, it's not a memory to hold on to I intended more for us If this song is heard, please take my word that I've fought for love Ultimately, I decided that I needed to at least try and reach out to Matt's family. But once again, daunted by the unusualness of our connection, I defaulted to a different narrative. The first email I sent had the subject, question for a writing project, which, while not technically incorrect, was a little misleading. I wasn't an old, insert whatever term is most appropriate for me and Matt's relationship here, I was a writer with a project. But it's how I ended up here, with this woman, Mary. Hi. Hi. How are you? Fine, thank you so much. Good, good. good to see you. It's a long time. Nice to see you. It's good to see you. Thank you. You um, guys ready for anything to start? Yeah, I'm going to have a glass of sangria. Sangria? Okay. I'll have one too. Wonderful. And then can we have guacamole too? This is Matt's mother. I do have one correction. Okay. One thing. Yes. Yeah. You talked about Matt's tattoo on his shoulder. That was that's the Ukrainian national symbol. That's okay. not a cross. Okay. That was because what kind of struck out with me was that no 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 Matt wasn't religious. He wouldn't have a cross on him. I remember it wasn't a religious thing, and I guess I man I, I guess it just that, that was yeah, one of those no, things I couldn't fact check. To Matt. Yes, to Matt. Here here. Matt's sister, Kelly, who got my original email, put us in touch, and Mary and I arranged to meet up at a Mexican restaurant on the Upper East Side of New York. Yeah, like I said, this is a uh, restaurant that we spent a lot of time at when Matt was sick, so... We're only a few blocks from Mount Sinai, the hospital where Matt spent most of the last few months of his life. I can see the family resemblances between Mary and Matt, and as soon as we start talking, I can see at least a little bit of where Matt got his sense of humor from. 60-year-old women really aren't that attracted to men holding dead fish. <laughs> Mary had been listening to the earlier episodes of Serial Dater and had had her own online dating experiences to share. Like one man, he wrote about how the main thing he missed about his wife was how she made lunch for him every day. And I thought, oh my God, what a tribute to the woman. I, mean, I know. <laughs> her whole life and the thing you miss is probably her chicken salad yeah. or something, you know? No. Of course, we spent most of our time talking about Matt. I knew from probably the time that Matt was a toddler that he was dead. Mm-hmm. Her description of Matt as a child was both new, 
I know this will sound shocking, but somehow Matt and I never got around to trading quirky stories about ourselves as children. But also strangely familiar. Like when you see a childhood picture of someone you've only known as an adult. I know this one year, Kelly was getting like Barbie dream house or something. Right. So I figured, well, you know what? I can't believe I did this. I got him G.I. Joe. Right? And he had to have been like four years old to that effect. Mm-hmm. And that night, Christmas, I went into the room crying. And I said, what's the matter? He goes, I don't like G.I. Joe. He kills people. I don't like war and this. And I'm like... <laughs> I'll ask Santa to take it back. And, <laughs> and then there was his illness. Basically happened was he called me. He hadn't been feeling well for a while. He mm-hmm. had, had been having yeah. And then Matt, who never missed work, never, you know, uh, took a week off from work. I thought that was kind of strange. But then the following week when he didn't go back to work, so I, you know, tell him, I said, look, I'm going to pick you up and you're going to come down to the shore for a while. I want you in the pool. I want you on the beach. You've been working too hard. Yeah. You know, you're not getting enough sunshine. So I picked him up. So he went down to New Jersey for a night, but even though his mother had planned a family dinner party for that weekend, he insisted on going back to the city for a doctor's appointment. Right before the party, she got a call from Matt. He just said, Mom, we have to go to New York. And I was like, why do I have to come to New York? Mom, you have to come to New York. Mary said, why do I have to come to New York? And Matt said, because I might have leukemia. As Mary tells it, it seemed to be one medical strikeout after another. Matt had acute myeloid leukemia, which Mary tells me is one of the deadliest forms. Okay, but as long as you don't have the pre-genetic desert, oh, well, you have that, but don't right. worry about that. You know what? You have three siblings. The chances are oh, none of them are a match. Right. They found a bone marrow donor in November of 2013, but the donor backed out at the last minute. Still, he convinced the doctors to let him go home for the holidays. Then in the end of January, he did get a bone marrow transplant. He finally got a bone marrow transplant at the end of January, and things were looking good. But then he suddenly got pneumonia, and within a week, she says, it was done. The closest we came to talking about Matt's dating life was talking about him being on the dating sites while he was sick. I know that there were, he said to me one time that you know, when he was on these sites, he'd say, oh, I've got cancer. In an email, Matt's sister, Kelly, told me this. I think he was always sort of looking for a serious partner, but he dated around a lot and had a lot of short-term relationships, some more serious than others. There were a few guys that visited Matt in the hospital, and a couple of guys that got in touch with me after Matt passed away to express condolences. Regarding his illness, she wrote, Altogether, Matt was in the hospital for about six months after the leukemia diagnosis, and he faced that time with such spirit and sass. 
It was kind of amazing to see how many people in Matt's life cared about him enough to make it a regular part of their routine to come visit him at Mount Sinai. His friends, roommates, co-workers, softball teammates. During that time, in spite of his chemo, he was always able to entertain whoever was in the room, even when it was difficult for him and even when he was exhausted from the treatments. I think it was the result of a life well lived that his room was always flooded with visitors. Matt had the uncanny ability to make friends wherever he went and the magnetism to keep people in his life for years. I don't know how anyone can face such a terrifying prognosis with such a strong will and sense of humor. Maddie was special. But I swear he used to speak to me. Well, I called you so quiet. And what's left here if I'm still trying? In one last strange twist, or maybe gift, of internet preservation, Kelly sent me a link to a blog that Matt kept during some of his treatment, which is both heartbreaking and hilarious. One paragraph which made me laugh out loud. No, seriously, I actually laughed out loud. Earlier this week, I started radiation therapy. I wake up bright and early, 8.30 a.m., which is about an hour and a half later than I would usually wake up in my old life, stand in front of a huge, scary, German-built machine, those Germans and their successful pivot towards high-tech manufacturing, and get zapped for about 10 minutes while the radiation attendants play an easy-listening Pandora station. Side note, they have offered several times to allow me to play my own music while I'm down there, but I've decided it best to stick with the easy-listening. Much like food and taste aversions, I don't want my body to subconsciously associate my favorite albums with the treatment so that I vomit every time the Fleet Foxes comes on. I then go back upstairs to rest, and six hours later I'm back down getting irradiated from the other side. Now, here's where I start to wonder about the technology I'm being subjected to. I understand that they switched me in order that my whole body is exposed to an even level of radiation, but I mean, didn't microwave oven technology solve this problem decades ago? Where's my rotating carousel? Can't I just do one 20-minute treatment a day while spinning? Can I bring popcorn? Till I'm found And lately I've been at my best Have you been hiding on my back? I have not checked That Matt was able to maintain his wit and charm through everything was as much a testament to how awesome he was as anything. One of the sections on OkCupid dating profiles is I'm really good at dot 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 Right now, Matt's reads, thinking of the worst possible thing to say in a given situation and not saying it. But I think maybe it should say something like, I'm really good at gazing into the abyss and giggling. Among the many friends I could have called, that I should have called, one actually had had a similar experience. Her experience was more... I don't know what the right word is here. Maybe it was just more... She had dated a guy for almost a year and found out he died when she saw someone leave a memorial message on his Facebook page. I'm sure she had a rough time of it as well, but in the end, she decided that she needed to find her own way to say goodbye to him. She wrote him a letter and went to where they had had one of their first dates and read it to him. I've always admired this friend for being funny and passionate, but I don't think I'd ever realized until she told me this story how much I was in awe of her grace. 
Mourning is a tricky thing. It occupies all four types of sentences, declaratory, interrogative, imperative, exclamatory. It involves rituals, but can also involve spontaneous outbursts. It has formalities, but also is subject to powerful and unpredictable emotions. We each have to experience it individually, our connections with the one we've lost unique to each one of us, but there's also a communal aspect to it. I guess I feel obligated to point out here that I have been insanely fortunate in my life to this point as far as my friends and loved ones are concerned, so if all of this sounds like I'm talking out of my ass, maybe I kind of am. The closest person in my life who I've lost is my grandfather, Stan, who died in 2009. It was the first funeral I had been to of someone who I had known well, and amidst all of the varying emotions— he had been an inveterate jokester, and there were several switchbacks from laughing to crying. I was struck by, for lack of a better phrase, how on the same page I seemed to be with everyone around me. Alone in my room in 2014, with nothing but my sadness about Matt, I realized that what had made my grandfather's funeral so powerful, so healing, was that I was able to share my sadness with other people who also loved him, and who were also feeling his loss acutely. What made things so strange with Matt was that I was the only person I knew who knew him, and even though I was telling those around me how great Matt was, how much I had liked him, they were only able to sympathize with me, and what I was craving was empathy. Part of what I wanted to do was to testify to Matt's inherent goodness. I wanted to throw in my own two cents about how the world had been a better place because he'd been in it. After a handful of conversations with friends who when I talked about what a special guy Matt had been, offered their sympathies and condolences, lovingly and genuinely, to be sure, I realized that what I really wanted was for someone to say, man, you are so right about Matt. He was top-notch. For a moment, I wanted to share my mind with someone else who had an idea of what it was exactly that had happened, who it was exactly we'd lost. Maybe now, having told you the whole story, we're closer than we might have been, but ultimately... Words and writing fails me here a little bit. I need a medium that's a little better at handling abstract, complicated, even contradictory emotions. So I'm going to sing a song, for you, for Matt, to try and break down the interpersonal divide. It's an Irish drinking song, and it's called The Parting Glass. Of all the money that e'er I spent I spent it in good company, and all the harm that e'er I've done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. Oh, all the comrades that e'er I had are sorry for my going away. And all the sweethearts that e'er I had 
would wish me one more day to stay. But since it falls unto my lot that I should rise when you should not, I'll gently rise and I'll softly call Good night and joy be with you all Good night and joy be with you all in the original version of this piece, the essay I wrote back in 2013, my summary at the end was a kind of embrace the world, carpe diem, love everybody kind of thing. And while none of those sentiments are wrong, I think they're a little cheap, a little incomplete. Having gone through and deconstructed each of these five dates once again, I know that no amount of everyone is a special snowflake style mantras would have changed my mind with any one of them. And this was something I already knew. If I can bring you back once more to that guy who I'd gone on a few dates with a few months before the date week, the guy who I'd been ready to skip grad school for and who I'd recorded that long, emotional goodbye voicemail for, one thing he'd been really concerned about in his emails was how much he was hurting me by breaking things off. To address this, I brought in one of the greatest philosophers of our time. All that stuff. I was out with a friend tonight. We were talking about dating, and I, I don't know if you've read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but um, there's a part where they talk about the art of flying, and uh, Douglas Adams, the author, says that there's no real art to flying, it's more of a knack, and it's the knack of being able to throw yourself at the ground and miss. So, all this by way of saying that I threw myself at the ground willingly, and just because I didn't miss doesn't mean I didn't mean to throw myself at the ground. Um, I don't know whether Adams intended his concept of the art of flying to be used as a metaphor for dating, but it seemed to fit eerily well. We go into it knowing that, most likely, it's really going to hurt. But we do it because, if it works, it's kind of the best. In the last year and a half since I first wrote it, and especially in the last six months since I learned of Matt's death, it seems to me that the much more important takeaway is marveling at the brief but intense connection made possible by, well, many things, but most immediately, the internet. It was like I was an acrobat, swinging from one pair of hands to the next, the combination of gravity and centrifugal force testing our combined strength. It was draining, sure, but it was also a little exhilarating. New but familiar I tried to tell you that we had met before A drunken exchange I learned your first name In episode one, I talked about how, in that moment before the first date, our brains take the entirety of what we know about the person and build a complete idea of a human being around it. Like a kind of connect-the-dots picture that has most of the dots missing. But then, if, when I've met them and they don't live up to the picture I've painted, my default is to reduce them into something easily packaged and disposable. Disinterested bowtie, the vain pilot, unaware argyle and the loquacious texter, and Matt, the one who got away? 
All of these are problematic, even Matt. Who's to say he would have wanted to date me had I stayed? Maybe my going to grad school was just a convenient excuse for him to back out of something he wasn't that interested in. I'm a fairly poor philosophy student, even if I sometimes masquerade as an actual philosopher. So it's possible someone else has said this more eloquently, but I've basically started viewing everything people do as addressing one or both of the following two human conditions. The first is stolen wholesale from Scott McCloud, that nobody can know what it's like to be you from the inside. We're stuck in our own bodies, always have been, always will be. The second is that we can't control time. I know that True Detective got a lot of mileage out of the whole time is a flat circle thing, but that philosophy, though I more or less got it, felt more applicable to a world that someone was creating in a script than the one that you and I are inhabiting here. I find it more useful to view time as a zipper. In front of us, the open teeth are all the different possible timelines, though of course there's more than two, there are millions, billions. But behind us, the chain, that's what a closed zipper is called, I had to look it up, is the single timeline of what actually transpired, and it's unchangeable. The slider body, that's the little thing that does the zipping, is the present, constantly moving forward, ingesting possibility and pooping out the past. My wishing that I had accepted Matt's friendship is as unattainable as Matt himself is at this point. The only takeaway is to move forward, cognizant of how it played out. Regrets are only valuable insofar as they act as guideposts for how to move forward in time. We're stuck on that slider body of the present, which is always moving forward. Some of the ways we try to address these problems are innocent enough. Most forms of culture aim to help us bridge that interpersonal gap, but with only a few exceptions, they also help us subvert time by allowing us to re-experience something over and over. We can spread this net wide, Sure, whenever we reread our favorite book or listen to that album that takes us back to the 10th grade, that'd be Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes for me, we're doing a kind of time travel, but it goes deeper than that. When we order our favorite toppings on a pizza or take the same route to work every day, we're trying to coil time and re-engineer that first exhilarating time we did the thing, whether it was to taste a mint chocolate chip milkshake or to hear the finale of Puccini's Turandot. And it's fine that we're doing these things. It's in our nature to do them, and fighting it wholesale makes about as much sense as abstinence-only sex education. The caution is not to avoid it, but to be aware that it's happening. To be aware when it is we're trying to re-experience something because we're desperate to get back to that totally inaccessible moment, which I'd argue is not great, as opposed to when we're trying to re-experience something because we want to understand it more deeply, to hear it, taste it, feel it in a new way, in a different way and maybe discover something different about it, and maybe, possibly, about ourselves. Sharing an experience with someone is also a double-edged sword. There's something deeply, viscerally satisfying about being next to someone in a movie theater or in a museum, or in a concert hall, or listening to the radio in your car, and knowing, or hoping anyway, that the film or painting or music might be causing similar sensations in their brain as it is in ours. It makes the world less lonely and helps us fight off solipsism. But the dark side of this is, like, really dark. Basically, any entity that tries to control the thoughts of others. Your tyrants, your fundamentalist religions, your reactionary politicians. 
but also parents who press their opinions too hard on their children, bullies of all ages who intimidate those around them through physical or social threat, or, say, a glib writer who assigns generic personality profiles to four perfectly decent individuals he meets one week when he accidentally overschedules himself. I stand by the conclusion that we weren't a good fit for one another, but the mistake I made was in pretending to know them on some meaningful level. My only excuse is that it was all in pursuit of the greatest way to subvert our stuckness in body, our stuckness in time, love. All right, all right, I know this is the part where everybody groans, and I know I had that coming, but I stand by it. Love provides us with the two things we want the most. First, when it's working right, it provides a kind of resistance to the unceasing march of time, a kind of constancy in a world of impermanence. Object permanence might be my favorite things that babies have to learn. On the one hand, dumb babies, they don't even know that when I walk into the next room that I still exist. On the other hand, if that baby could talk and was like, okay, but how do I know you're still there? I don't know that I'd have, like, a really philosophically sound argument for it. Learning object permanence is like an early lesson in faith. Faith in our senses and that the world will most of the time obey a few laws. Love is another kind of object permanence. A weird way of saying, even when you can't see me, I want you to know that I'm still there. In a gross, mushy, barfy kind of emotional way. The other way love subverts our human condition is to break down the barriers between us. Sure, it happens on a mental level. When you and a close friend are thinking the same thing and you say, Get out of my brain! But if you're really lucky, it happens on a physical level. John Cameron Mitchell knew what the fuck he was talking about when he wrote the lyrics of his song The Origin of Love for Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It may sound base or even a little grotesque, but two bodies pressing into one another is the most literal way we can try and bridge the interpersonal divide. I suppose this is my own way of trying to subvert the interpersonal divide, to try and open the little door inside my head and invite you all to climb in. I'll admit here, near the end of all this, that serial dater was a bit of a misnomer. Or, if it wasn't, it's because anyone who's gone on any date is a kind of serial dater, the way that anyone who's ridden a bus is a serial writer, or who's had a beer is a serial drinker. Serialization helps us cope with these human conditions of being stuck in time and in self. If we can put something into a series, it keeps the ever-new present from being quite such a daunting unknown. We're all doing what we can to make sense of a world that sometimes seems to stretch a little too far or fall a little too short. To figure out who we are and how we fit into the bigger picture. To borrow the sentiment of my therapist from episode one, there's something profound about embracing the task of trying to be more ourselves. For me to be more me, for you to be more you. And so, I wait. Maybe not patiently, but I wait for the universe, if it wants to, to bring me closer to that guy who I will have a drink with, and then dinner with, and then kiss, and then, and then, and then, until one day, as I slowly ascend out of the depths of sleep and rise into the new light of another day, I can look across the pillow and say, 
Good morning, boyfriend. Good morning, Serial Dater is written, produced, and edited by me. A major heartfelt thanks to Matt's family, especially his mother, Mary, and his sister, Kelly, who gave generously of their time and energy to help me tell Matt's story. A huge thanks to my test subjects, Fatih Ahmed and Anna Marquardt, as well as my other pre-broadcast listeners, Olivia Wolfgang Smith and Bronnie Konecki, who also provided their fair share of emotional support. A big thanks to Julia Weatherell for providing technical guidance, and to Diane Roberts and her 2013 article and essay workshop. An amazing thank you to Adam Enright, who provided the voices for all five of my dates. If you're in New York, definitely check out his show, Two Scoops, at Joe's Pub on June 8th. Big, big thanks to my parents, Mike and Karen, for a lot of things, but most immediately helping me get my home podcast studio up and running. An enormous, disbelievingly grateful thank you to my grandmother, Barbara Silverstone, founder and director of the Petticoat Lane Writers Residency, without whom this whole project would not have been possible. Music help today from Scott James. His new EP, Rosaline, will be available July 10th. You can find more information and buy his first EP, Destinesia, at www.scottjamesmusic.com. If you're in New York, he'll be performing this Friday, May 1st, at Rockwood Music Hall. The music for Serial Dater comes from the jaw-droppingly amazing, not to mention shockingly attractive, Prom Date. A huge thanks to them for letting me ransack their album, Portraits, for my purposes. A big thanks specifically to David Fuller and Laura Smith, who helped make it all happen. If you're in Chicago or Memphis, you can still catch Prom Date on their spring tour this week. Head over to www.promdatemusic.com to find live dates, buy their album, and to see how pretty they are. For more information on Serial Dater, you can head to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher, and sharing the podcast on social media. You can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr pages on the site. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening. Without you guys, I'd just be a guy talking into his computer while sitting in his closet. If you're interested in supporting Serial Dater, there are a bunch of different ways. First, consider joining and or donating to the National Marrow Donor Program at www.bethematch.org. I should note that at the moment, men who have had sex with men in the last five years are ineligible to join. If you'd like to see this changed, you can head to bonemarrowpetition.org to add your name to the petition to change this policy. Second, please support the musicians who generously donated their music to the podcast by buying their albums. You can find links on the website. If you would still like to contribute more directly to Serial Dater to help offset some of the production costs and to encourage future podcasting projects, you can head to www.serialdaterpodcast.com slash donate.